red flags, but okay podcast beginning in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hello, Jen. Kate. How are you? How are you coping with the Skype song stuck in your head? Just great. I'm just bouncing around. <laughs> bam, bam, bam. Bam, bam. <laughs> we basically began our Skype call with us just singing that back and forth to yeah. each other. One person harmony. would stop, <laughs> normal conversation, and then all of a sudden one of us would just start singing it again. It's, it is such an earworm. I'm not even mad about it, but it's going to be stuck in my head for an absolute eternity. So I have, uh, th- this is also a podcast recommendation, um, but um, I listen to the podcast Bananas, which is on the Exactly Right Network, and it's Scotty Landis and Kurt Broneler, and it's hands down the funniest podcast I've ever listened to, listened to in my life. Sounds like it would be, but it's not child appropriate. Um, it's <laughs> so funny, but they have a theme song that is so good that I actually bought it off of Bandcamp. But it also, if my baby's crying, that song makes her stop crying. And the song is called Bananas. Um, and it's so good. And it just kind of like, is just the icing on top of an amazing pod. But this, the song Bananas is has become like, it gets stuck in your head really fast. And it's just such an amazing song. So this is just a random podcast recommendation if you need something funny and you love <laughs> Good, slightly 80s theme songs with great lyrics. Banana, bananas. Um, bananas. Yeah, you got to listen to Bananas. A-N-A-N-A-S. This shit is bananas. But anyway, we're not bananas. We're not. We'll never we be bananas. bananas. But we are Weird Flex But Okay, the podcast where we do our homework, you listen to it, and maybe learn something. So what is our topic today, Kate? Our topic is flesh and blood, and I'm flesh. Which sounds gross. And I'm blood. Somehow <laughs> still not as gross. Both flesh and blood. Yes, I am a giant flesh balloon full of blood. <sighs> and if you if you know anything about me, you know that. My gosh, me too. What a coincidence. <laughs> we have a lot in common these days. Um, so I start. You told me this. You're on top I of did. things. You're very good about this. Did get it wrong last week. My rumor was incorrect last week. <laughs> So that's okay. So don't tell anybody. All right. I promise not to tell anybody. Also, shout out to our 1% of listeners in Germany. Yes. I am drinking a German Riesling in honor of you tonight. And I also will be telling a German story. Exciting. I am drinking a uh, cactus shaped cup of water with sweet tea mio in it because so, i'm a child <laughs> it's very on brand for me it's from germany actually I, I don't think it is things from germany are kind of expensive so probably <laughs> not but i will i will drink my cactus cup in your honor one percent of listeners in germany but let me get started let yes. me even let me even put my glasses back on so i can actually see there we go now i'm clark kent okay so You can't talk about flesh without talking about cannibalism. Yes. Generally speaking. Um, Well, plenty of people have definitely eaten people. I'd like to talk about two dudes who may or may not have done it on television. What? (laughs) Yes. Um, So there is a Dutch TV show, and I will try to say this name, and I know it's wrong. It is 
Proif Konihanen <laughs> or guinea so pigs mean. if you're nasty. <laughs> So bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know it's Speaking wrong. I tried. Much. <laughs> tried. Tried. I'm sorry. Um, but it's it's also guinea pigs. Um, and the personalities, Dennis Storm and Valerio Zeno, who go by Storm and Zeno, had tiny pieces of fat and muscle surgically removed from their own bodies, buttocks and torso, respectively. And they had them cooked and served up to each other on television. Basically, it's not very significant pieces. They're super tiny. Um, have you ever seen a dermal punch? What's primarily used to remove uh, like skin cancer to do biopsies? Yeah. Like the little little circular, basically a tiny, sharp cookie cutter. So they basically mm-hmm. had something that small and it was taken out of their bodies. So it's pretty much like 50-50 between people being super appalled that they ate their friend's flesh and people being super appalled because they don't believe that they actually ate their friend's flesh. <laughs> and uh, to this day, both men and the network that the show aired on insist that it was not a stunt and it's completely real. So Dutch TV, super wild. But I actually think that it is real. And the reason why is because they have a super like sheet white face sobering moment when they actually go to have the, the meat like surgically removed from their bodies where you can see in their faces that they are regretting every moment of it. And that is a very real moment. <laughs> what, what, it, what were their thoughts? Uh, um, they, they said it's, it was just not really, it didn't really have a lot of flavor. wasn't really notable. wasn't like if they didn't know it was human meat, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have thought it was any different than like a piece of pork or whatever, but it was also a very, very small portion. Yeah. Would you do it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've always so said too. there's, there's nothing in the world I won't eat. I want, well, I want to eat poop, but there's nothing in the world I won't eat other than poop. <laughs> and um, like meat wise, just to try it. And if there was mm-hmm. like some sort of like ethically sourced, like 100% consenting, like not illegal, nothing like that, where yeah, you could. Well, those guys were clearly consenting. Yeah, exactly. And like you could eat human meat. Like I would try it. I don't think I would like it. I think generally people who are, this is so cringe, but generally people who are cannibals have said that human meat isn't something they had a taste for. It was something that was more of like a weird spiritual, murdery, you know, psychotic break type of thing. Um, they weren't just like, ooh, delish, you know. A la the Donner Party. A la the Donner Party, yeah. Or I'm reading right now is a mm-hmm. fictionalized version of the Donner Party mm-hmm. with a supernatural twist. Oh. The Donner Party this- is the stuff of absolute nightmares. Like, I I read a book that I cannot remember the name off, off the top of my head, but it was many years ago. And it was, like, a very moment-by-moment moment telling of the Donner Party and it was a lot worse than I thought it was. Yeah. I did some research on it because I'm reading this book. Like, and by research, I mean, I read Wikipedia. And from. yeah. And I was extremely stressed out reading the Wikipedia. <laughs> but horrifying. the book is pretty accurate minus the supernatural twist. Yeah. So. If you're going to do the thing, do the thing. The Hunger by Alma Katsu. Highly recommend. Okay. We're, we should just, start doing book recommendations. <laughs> she just wrote one on um, the Titanic and Ooh. like supernatural like stuff with the Titanic. That just came out earlier this year. So 
That's the exact right amount of spooky. I love it. I'll have to check. Yep. It. I'll have to check it out. I still have because Jen is an amazing friend. I still have a bunch of books to read because she sent <laughs> a giant like eight pound box of books across the world. <laughs> I and I, it was just it was like no note, nothing. It's just books. It was literally just books. <laughs> it was books and when then like was... a gorgeous gift, but then it was like no note. <laughs> just <laughs> open it up. Like here's your books. Yes. Shout out to my friend Hannah in yeah. her Etsy shop. She yeah, made Hannah's that towel. Yeah, Hannah's <laughs> Hannah's a listener. She made the uh the Live in La Vida Bruja towel that I put it up on our story once, but it's so cute and it's so perfect for me. And I'm one of those people that whenever somebody says something's Halloween decorations, it just means that's how I decorate my life. So <laughs> And I was like, Kate has like no household goods now. So she's going to get this and she'll have no choice but to use it. So I was I like, I got it. And I was just like, wow, I do need hand towels. This is great. But anyway, back to Dutch TV back eating people. I really enjoyed that. And I may traverse YouTube later to try and find that. Yeah, you can find episode. it. It's all uh, it's all in Dutch. So good luck. But But you can find it. But yeah, that's a uh, that's Dutch TV. It's bananas. Cool. They will eat people. So mm -hmm. moving on to blood. Of course, as always. The first two big breakthroughs in terms of blood were William Harvey's description of the circulation of blood through the body in 1628, and the invention of the syringe in 1659 by Christopher Wallace, oh, which. I'm sorry to interrupt. I never even think of little inventions like that and how life-changing they are. Yeah. yeah, that that was like huge for blood because it could do the intravenous injections yeah. and stuff. And I just think it's crazy in 1628 to figure out that blood circulates through your body. I was just like... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's mind-blowing. <laughs> Next up is Richard Lower or Lauer. I'm going to say Lauer. Sure. Sounds better. Like Matt Lauer. Richard Lauer, who performed the first successful transfusion between animals. Okay. Very but exciting. That's not what we're here to talk about today. <gasps> what is it? In 1667, just one year after Richard Lauer's success, Jean-Baptiste Denis gave a young man with a fever 12 ounces of lamb blood. Ooh. This patient, <laughs> along with the second patient, both survived and recovered. Well, at least there's that. Sadly, though, his third and fourth patients did not survive the procedure. <sighs> Oof. So, you know, no notes. <laughs> do what Which you gotta do. We know, like, you can't just put any blood into someone's body and mm. it'll work out perfectly fine. Like... It's got a match. But back then, they didn't know. Yeah, how would they? Denise was taken to court to be tried for murder after oh. the wife of the fourth patient accused him of murdering her husband. Oh. Uh, he was not found guilty. However, blood transfusions were banned and not used in mainstream medicine until the mid-19th century. Whoa. I mean, that's pretty banana, especially considering how many things have happened how many like wars and things like that where people were having massive blood loss and a blood transfusion would have really been life-saving. But because of his like experiments with it, even though two of the patients were successful and survived 
and like actually got better. Um, it was banned in France. They That's... were like, you not practice blood transfusions in mainstream medicine. So there was probably witch doctors or whatever who would. Could you imagine perform. how, since this is October, we can say essentially anything we want, but can you imagine how gory early blood transfusions were? That's what I was thinking. I was like, man, and that just seems so painful too. Like it's so efficient. I actually seen- just made my body tense up for a second. Like I had, you know, whenever you get like the the gross wave, yes. where you feel like, ha, like I had that for a second, <laughs> just imagining it. I um, I know for a fact my sister is not listening to this episode because my sister has a fear of giving blood. She's actually fainted giving blood before, which you have as well. I have. I, it was a blood sample, which mostly because I didn't know I was going to have to get blood drawn. Yeah. And so I didn't eat any, anything and just had coffee. Worst. <laughs> so, yeah, I yeah. passed out from that. My, my sister has this horrible fear of it. And she used to cover up her neck in a way where her wrist and elbow and elbows were also like super closed off. She said she was covering all her blood giving places whenever she was freaked out. She'd go, oh, my blood giving places. But but I had that like moment of just being like, ha, ah, like whenever you're just thinking yeah. about what, what an early blood transfusion must have looked like. Yeah. Lamb's blood. That, well, that's Which even just- worse really gross and I'm actually kind of surprised because it's that would seem very un Christian or Catholic or religious basically to like put animals blood into your body that's true I mean blood of a lamb is actually super like religious like Christianity significant but not you know I don't think it's in a way where they're like like, so use it I think that they was, mean it, yeah, they mean it more over the, like, coat your front door in it type of way. <laughs> well, that was the history of the first transfusion. That's very cool. That's really cool. That's one of those, uh, one of those things that you don't really ever think about, but it's actually a super fascinating piece of, and, like, very important piece of history. That's yeah. Awesome. Um, so I'm going to get into another icky thing. If yes. You don't, if you don't mind. I, like this was going to be somewhat of an icky episode. Yeah, I think th- anybody could have foreseen <laughs> that. I don't. I don't really think we needed a trigger warning at the beginning of this one. It's flesh and blood. You know what you're getting in for. Um, tell me if you share the same irrational fear as I do. Oh no, I know yes, you do because you're afraid of everything on Earth. <laughs> I'm like, oh no, I'm doing your sister's pose. (laughs) Much like me, I know for a fact you are afraid of everything. So are you afraid of necrotizing fasciitis? Uh, I think so. Okay, it's also known as flesh-eating bacteria. Yes, okay. Okay. I was like, if my Latin serves me well. (laughs) Uh, So for those of you who don't know and haven't spent sleepless nights thinking about it, like I have, I'm going to tell you exactly what necrotizing fasciitis is. It is a bacterial infection of the soft tissue and fascia, which is basically the layer between your skin and muscle. It spreads through the tissue very quickly, releasing enzymes that cause thrombosis or clotting and destroying the flesh in its wake. So it, you know, without a better way to say it, it kind of liquefies that layer of, uh, uh-huh. of dermis and, and fascia. Um, it's usually treated with extremely aggressive antibiotics and amputation of the affected area to prevent spread. There isn't 
really a better way to go about it most of the time because it spreads so quickly. If you get it in your hand, they will just amputate your lower arm. It's it really is that fast. Um, yeah, it should, it could take a matter of hours to days for it to spread into your whole body and kill you from sepsis. Um, so I'm promising you right now that I will not be adding photos of this to Instagram. (laughs) I I swear to you, I won't do it. But, um, in a very bizarre case of preliminary justice, the the disgusting blobfish in a suit, Harvey Weinstein, had a type of necrotizing fasciitis called Fournier's gangrene. Do not Google it. You will die. This particular <laughs> infection attacks the soft tissue of the genitals and perineum, <gasps> primarily in men. Super gross. Um, it Karma is, does exist. So he has had it for, he had it for a very long time. Um, it's, he's, it's not like a, a new thing that he got in prison or anything like that. He's had it um, for a very mm-hmm. long time. Um, but it, and like in some of the court proceedings, it has become relevant because uh, people are able to very easily identify his genitals because they're so badly damaged. It, Is it contagious? Um, it's a bacterial infection. So, yes. I mean, in the same yeah. way that any bacterial infection can be spread. Oh, but I mean, he was treated He was treated for it and no longer has it, but he still has oh, the okay. extremely significant damage to scarred. his tissue. Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, but necrotizing fasciitis is something I'm so terrified of because there's people who will get it from falling into a bayou and they've got a little cut on their arm or people it's essentially think of it as like a type of MRSA. Yeah. So it it is just something that comes and just knocks people out. And many people do die of it. It does happen very, very frequently. People die of it, but that's one of my heavy fears. (laughs) Yeah. Super gross. I don't just, bathe myself in bleach real quick (laughs) good luck (laughs) i remember the there's a season of america's next top model where one of the models gets a flesh-eating bacteria on her face on her face yes yes that's crazy I mean, I don't, I definitely don't think it was anything of this caliber. No, she it would have definitely been definitely very mild. She just had to take some antibiotics and she was good to go within like a couple weeks. Yeah. But the, all the girls were like freaking out, mm-hmm. which is I, very entertaining. I remember that too. <laughs> For good TV. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you a legend. Okay. I'm in for it. A legend that says, if you turn off the light, close the bathroom door, then say Bloody Mary three times (gasps) while facing the mirror, a delicious beverage will appear in your hand. Oh, that's preferable. (laughs) I thought I was getting super murdered. Wait, I may have gotten my legends confused. Okay. (laughs) This is what you wanted to do. There are a few infamous Bloody Marys throughout history. The first, of course, is Mary Tudor, who is well known for her bloody reign as Queen of England. Of course. The next is our spooky friend who appears in the mirror after you chant her name three times to murder you, which has a really cool psychological explanation because it's like if you're in a dark room and you stare at a mirror long enough, like you will start to just like hallucinate. And that's why people think they actually see Bloody Mary in the mirror. That makes sense. There's a name for it and it's a complicated name and I didn't look it up. How dare you not even try? Um, then there's the one I will be discussing today, the drink. 
Okay. You Bloody Marys. Um, so as you know, I'm not a drinker. I'm not, I'm not against it. I'm not going to yuck anybody's yum. I just get really bad headaches. So I don't drink, but, uh, I do like Bloody Marys because it's like a meal. See, I don't like tomato juice, so I've never been a Bloody Mary fan. Oh, see, I like a good V8. It's like a, (laughs) it's a boozy V8 essentially. (laughs) While the drink itself has had many names, it seems that the origins may have begun in Harry's New York bar in not new york but good old paris <laughs> of course ferdinand pete patois was the bartender at harry's in the 1920s when he began experimenting with vodka there was an increase of russian immigrants at the time due to revolution in their country the tomato juice cocktail v8 not, I don't actually think it was V8, but tomato <laughs> juice cocktail was also making its way from America to French grocery stores. So Pete began playing around with vodka and tomato juice, then began adding extra items like Worcestershire, Worcestershire. <laughs> black pepper, and lemon, okay. leading to the very first of what we now know today as the Bloody Mary. Okay, I like Tabasco in mine. Mm -hmm. It said that um, Ernest Hemingway was a frequent patron of Harry's, and he very much enjoyed a good Bloody Mary there. Dude loved a drink. (laughs) Also loved Sloppy Joes. That's an an Ernest Hemingway fact for you. Bloody Mary with the Sloppy Joes. He was a very rotund man. I could see him doing that. But there's a very famous bar... I, grew, I lived in Key West as a child, but there's a very famous bar in Key West called Sloppy Joe's, and it was Ernest Hemingway's favorite bar. I have heartburn thinking about it. <laughs> it's, it's really setting you off. It's really affecting your esophagus right now. So when Pete traveled to New York City, he introduced the drink known as the Red Snapper. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that picked up. I hope so, too. <laughs> Redhead and I snapped. So, so red snapper. <laughs> that is, hold on. Excuse me while I change your name. <laughs> um, to the King Cole bar. While many believe the drink was renamed to Bloody Mary after Mary Tudor, it seems that it may have gotten the name from entertainer George Jessel, who named it after his friend Mary Gerachi? Gerati? Sure named Mary, this famous entertainer at the time. And apparently he was the one to convince them to change the name to Bloody Mary. The Bloody Mary is now a famous and popular brunch drink around the world with restaurants all putting their own spin on it. Very you can nice. get Bloody Maria. You can get um, I think it's a Bloody Derby. Mariah plays right into the podcast and correct me if I'm wrong, but she had it with like bourbon in Kentucky oh. um, with tequila to put like that spin on it there was like there's restaurants that'll put like a whole chicken or lobster claw in it they really like have just expanded the options for the Bloody Mary now I as much as I think that Bloody Mary is kind of like a meal and a drink I don't necessarily like drinks that have actual food in them that's bothersome to me. So you like 
Bloody Mary, just basic and simple, maybe like an olive and celery. Yeah, just give me the celery. Let's call it a Bloody Mary neat. <laughs> there you go. The Kate Bloody Mary. Yeah. The real red snapper. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. I didn't know the history of the Bloody Mary. That's pretty neat. That one I dedicate to Mariah, who loves herself a good Bloody Mary. Shout out to Mariah. Not a redhead. Not so, a redhead. <laughs> uh, so I have a really short one for you. Okay. So like many human beings with fluctuating self-esteem, like myself, um, whenever I do weigh myself or when the doctor weighs me more accurately, because I don't really weigh myself at all anymore, um, I immediately subtract like 20 pounds for my clothes and my shoes, sometimes my hair, if there's a lot of product in it. It's an especially humid day. Yes, I have very big hair though. But um, now I have something new to subtract. So your skin or your integumentary system, if you're nasty, accounts for roughly 15% of your body weight. Oh, it makes sense, but it still seems like a lot. See, does it seem like a lot or does it seem like a little if you think about how much? I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things where you're like, is it a lot? Skin off and go away. Let me just take off. Well, it's just like whenever they're like, the human head weighs nine pounds or whatever. It's like, well, time to remove my head. (laughs) I have a large head. Mine probably weighs more. Do you have a big head? I do have a big head. I've never noticed this about you. I just have like a large head. Never. We're all getting new hats. I need to measure your head. Well, and that's that is it. That's it for for that one. It's your skin is fifteen percent of your body weight. Just a cool fact. Fact. It's also really gross because I'm just picturing my skin by itself now, and that's weirding me out. Jennifer, I'm gonna need you to leave. Ha! <laughs> Can't. <laughs> all right, you're up. Okay. This is the story for our German listeners. Hello. It is about Ludwig Tessnow, a German serial killer known for murdering four children, two girls in 1898 and two boys in 1901. And I know that sounds like a bad story to dedicate to our German listeners, but I promise it gets better. I mean, it better. (laughs) So after the first murders, witnesses said they saw a carpenter test now near the site of the murders when questioned by police he had a um, he had large dark stains on his shirt that he claimed were from wood dye which was believable because he was a carpenter of course um he was eventually let go to lack of evidence and he moved away so in this new town in 1901 he murdered two brothers and once again witnesses pointed to him again identified him as a carpenter Um, being with the two boys before their murders. He tried the wood dye excuse again, but it didn't work this time, especially once a farmer revealed that he caught Tessnow mutilating his sheep earlier. That if you are trying to get away with something, anything at all, robbed a bank, whatever, don't mutilate sheep because people will find you and you're immediately a weirdo. Yep. So just before the murders of the two brothers took place, not like by just before, I mean it in like the sense of the other day, which could have been months ago, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, a German biologist, Paul Ullenhuth. 
Ooh, yep, uh -huh. that's the one. <laughs> Listen, my German is very just down to Oma, Opa, and Tanta, and Ur. <laughs> so <laughs> we're gonna go with Ulenhuth, yeah. uh, Paul, Paul, and then that last name. I'm going on a tangent, but in the early 1900s, to be named Paul, Paul is like an like a late 80s name. It is <laughs> Paul. Paul screams. I was born in like 1973. Not uh, 1901. Yeah, German biologist. <laughs> well, Paul, he was finalizing the precipitin test. And this is a test that would allow them to detect the presence of human or animal blood. <gasps> the local prosecutor and the local magistrate had a discussion and they decided that the precipitin test would be used on test mouse clothing. The test conclusively showed that while a few stains were wood dye, a majority of them were human blood. And it also revealed that a large stone was the murder weapon. Tesna was found guilty and executed by beheading in 1904. It said allegedly executed by beheading, actually, in the notes, which I was like, allegedly, is he still out there? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> you could yeah. put that, you could like put the onus on that anywhere of like, he was allegedly beheaded, he was allegedly executed. It's like, I feel like you would know if someone was beheaded. It's a pretty cut and dry. Oh no. <laughs> it's because it's a pretty cut and dry process. <laughs> There's nothing alleged about it. Like yeah. your head's off. It's not you're not nearly headless Nick. Yeah. Um, so Ullenhuth's precipitin test was officially introduced as court proven evidence in 1903, and it eventually was adapted to identify other bodily secretions like semen and saliva. Wow. So this was like the first trial where forensic science and blood helped solve the case. That's really cool. That's I super did not fascinating. That. I've never heard of that case in my life. Me either. That's so neat. that's why it ends cool for the German listeners. They get to brag that a German biologist named Paul. <laughs> just Paul. <laughs> Don't worry about the rest. <laughs> Very cool. Well, um, let's Let's go in the Wayback Machine again, but we're going to go way back. So, Jennifer, you and I both have tattoos, correct? Yes, I have one. Okay. So, obviously, I, I have them out of both of us. I have. <laughs> I thought you had more than one tattoo. Um, well, I know, well, then I guess I know exactly what your tattoo is because I've seen one tattoo on you. Um, I have about 20 tattoos of various sizes, some extremely large, some comically small. Um, but both of us are absolute ink babies compared to the oldest tattooed human, Otzi the Iceman, who died oh. and froze in the Italian Alps around 3300 BCE. Okay, how many tattoos did he have? Our pal Otzi amassed 61 tattoos of dots and lines around his body. So everybody loves Ooh. a bad boy. Did it say like what percentage of his body was covered? Not very much. I mean, it was dots and lines, so very, not very much. But it's yeah, tattoo have so. had uh, some sort of like um, like healing or shamanistic relevance instead of being art necessarily because of the locations and locations of previous injuries he'd had and stuff like that. Well, and also given how old he was, 
the like process to get those tattoos was probably extremely painful. Probably. Yeah. You're not going to get a lot of, uh, it's all line work, bud. You're not getting the shading done for those. <laughs> no color. <laughs> no color for you. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, essentially like charcoal ash was used, um, for the base of it, but super cool. Very cool looking. Um, Otzi of course is thought to be the like oldest frozen human that they've ever found. Um, I think at some point, anybody of a certain age has seen a picture of the Iceman. We're all familiar with him, but, um, but yeah, it was really cool. I think it's like Ootsy, but you know. Ootsy sounds cooler. It's kind of like Otis. So I'm picturing the dog from Garfield. (laughs) Doesn't look anything like him, but same (laughs) spirit. They had the same spirit. He was also thought to, he's also thought to have been murdered, but that's a whole, that's a tangent. That's a tangent I will use some other day. We'll come back to you, Otzi. We will discuss Otzi's murder some other day. But yeah, so that is uh, essentially the oldest known tattoos. Wonderful. Yeah. I like that. I didn't, I heard of Otzi, but I didn't realize he had tattoos, which just makes him all the cooler. Yeah, he's a bad boy. He is a bad boy. Okay. I've got a long one. For you. Mm-hmm. And we are going to do some science. We're okay. going to do some math. Yep. But it's going to be worth it. I'm ready, honestly. I've got my pencil out. I've got highlighters on my desk right now because I'm ready to do this. A common theme among fantasy games, movies, and books is that a character always has a sword forged from the blood of their enemies. But how much blood would that actually take? Oh. There are approximately 5 million red blood cells in one microliter of blood. With that being said, the amount of iron in a red blood cell is extremely low, and not to mention it would be extremely difficult to extract the iron. This would imply that there's about 4 grams of iron in the body. But, iron, so it's not as simple as 4 times however much iron you would need to make a sword normally. Mm-hmm. So iron's found specifically in hemoglobin, which is made up of, here we go, chemistry, 2,952 carbon atoms, 4,664 hydrogen, 832 oxygen, 812 nitrogen, 8 sulfur, and 4 iron atoms. It has been such a long time since I took organic chemistry. <laughs> so long. <laughs> Yep. As I was writing my notes, I was like, uh. (laughs) Um, So basically, the gist of that is that iron is a very, very small component in hemoglobin, which is um, part of your red blood cell. And we're not going into all of that. That's that's not. (laughs) Um, So oxygenated hemoglobin is diamagnetic. So it repels magnets, which is why whenever you go near something magnetic, you don't just clot up from the iron in your blood. Could you imagine? Could you freaking imagine what that would be like? Holy crap. Um, The only time that this differs is when it's traveling between the heart and the lungs and it's paramagnetic since it's deoxygenated. Now, if a machine were to pump and deoxygenate these large quantities of blood similar to a heart, 
then a super magnet could theoretically extract the raw iron out of the blood. Oh, that's just nightmare fuel to me in the weirdest way. But again, in theory, because nobody has ever tested this because murder. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, this would leave you with um, iron that resembles sand. So it's like called iron sand. And oh, even, <laughs> even the highest quality of iron sand still has impurities and byproducts. Which would mean even with about four kilograms of iron from a human body, only about one kilogram of that would be workable. (laughs) So now, now that we got the science part down, we're moving to the math. The average longsword has a finished weight of one and a half kilograms with about 0.75 kilograms of waste. So that's 2.25 kilograms of iron workable that you need which in grams because again one or there's only about one gram sorry i incorrectly said kilograms of iron from a human body you get one one workable one gram of workable iron i was gonna say that's a lot more iron than (laughs) i was thinking So, because the body has four grams of iron, but only one gram of that is workable iron. Okay, that makes sense. And two thousand two hundred and fifty grams of workable iron to build the sword. Okay, which would entail two thousand three hundred and fifty-two completely drained enemies to have a sword forged from your enemy's blood. Well, that's why it's so badass, though. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm like, man. Now you should really be afraid of them because they've killed a lot of people to make that sword. Also, they're very good at math. (laughs) I did not do this math. I stole all the math from somebody else who did it. Thank God. Um, Because I was like, Jen, what is happening in your life? Do you need help? Blink twice if you're in danger. (laughs) If you're working on forging a sword. Um, You are a Scorpio, though. So you are a little, you do have a vindictive side. I could see you doing something like that. Really, you could make about four paper clips, iron paper clips from one human body. That's actually more blood. than I thought. Yeah, it's kind of cool. So um, the article references X Men. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's X Two when Magneto's in his like little plastic prison. Um, yes. And injects iron into the guy's the security guard's blood so that Magneto can just draw it out. Mm-hmm. So like he had to raw iron into his blood to be able to do that so they were actually keeping it pretty scientifically accurate because magneto couldn't just draw the blood the iron out of the hemoglobin like that. interesting that they went that far to really think about that also x2 was was really good now that i think about it all right so let's get into my last story and this one is a story <laughs> It is a fun, it's kind of a fun story. It's a little gross though. Okay. So (laughs) we're going to go back into the way, way back machine. Not quite as far back as Otzi. The year is 1876, a fine year. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful March morning on the Crouch Farm in Bath County, Kentucky. We've all been there. It's gorgeous. With Paul. (laughs) Yes. So suddenly and without warning, Pieces of flesh ranging in size from tiny specks to chunks as large as your hand 
began raining down onto the yard. Ah! Yes. So the tissue, I know, the tissue continued to fall for several minutes after a great deal of examination by scientists and butchers and weirdos. It was concluded that maybe, probably, it's animal meat of some kind. They're not totally sure. Um, Unfortunately, I don't believe, so at the time, obviously, they couldn't DNA test it. um, But I don't believe that any any of it was collected in a way that it could now be tested. Um, so Bummer. yeah, this became known as the Kentucky meat shower, which is also <laughs> something I do not recommend Googling. <laughs> but uh, there are some theories as to what exactly it was. So some people said that it's, uh, there were some people who believed it to be some sort of like primor- primordial goo all collected together somehow and then it went into a cloud and it rained down but the more likely and i think because i do fully believe that the simplest answer is usually the correct answer is that it was a bunch of vultures who because vultures will just totally yak up whatever they've got going on sometimes because it doesn't sit right Mm. a bunch of vultures were flying up above the cloud layer and so uh you know how in some people if somebody starts puking they'll start puking (laughs) Yes, that's every vulture. So if one vulture starts puking, they all start puking. And they think that maybe one vulture was like, oh, gross, barfed up a piece of flesh. And then all the rest of the vultures started barfing it up. And then it just started falling on this lady's farm. Which is just like almost more disgusting. Yeah. (laughs) Like vulture barf. Good old fashioned Kentucky meat shower. You know, there's a restaurant somewhere in Kentucky that has like a meat sampler platter that is called the Kentucky meat shower. I think that's the best thing that could be called a Kentucky meat shower. (laughs) If you live in Kentucky and you're listening and you know of that restaurant, send us a picture of the menu. Or make one. This is a golden opportunity. Own a restaurant in Kentucky. Or anywhere, really. But it'd be funnier in Kentucky. We're essentially handing you a business plan. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that was my final one, the Kentucky Meat Shower. Just so you know, I am not a sympathy barfer, so. I am not a sympathy barfer either. It doesn't really, stuff doesn't really affect me like that. I'll get the heebies, like I'll get a little, but I don't really get set off by stuff, which is very fortunate considering you and every one of our listeners knows that I will eat anything. (laughs) Oh, hey, Lily. Uh, Lily just walked right onto my notes. She said, we're done. (laughs) I am a sympathy crier, though, so. Oh, yeah, I'm always on the verge of crying. Okay. I'm going to end us with my favorite hemorrhagic fever. (gasps) Ebola. Of course. I wrote a very lengthy paper about Ebola once. I love me some Ebola. Not really, though, because it's really bad. But it is my favorite hemorrhagic fever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is an infectious disease first discovered in 1976 near the Opal Ebola River in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, specifically believed to have originated from Kittim Cave. Uh, probably from bats or some sort of other animal. 
Um, but they're they're pretty certain that it was animal born mm-hmm. and that it would have spread through direct contact with blood, bodily fluids, or tissue of the infected animals. And um, it can then be spread through bodily fluids of humans, both dead or sick. The symptoms can be split between both dry and wet symptoms, which is just the grossest way to describe symptoms. That's how I explain, I explain everything is dry and wet things. I'm going to call it moist symptoms. Well, I'm going to hang up on you. There go all our listeners. <laughs> Dry symptoms come first with the fever, uh, the standard aches and pains, and fatigue. The wet symptoms are diarrhea and vomiting, and of course, unexplained hemorrhaging. Yay! Which, and uh, these symptoms can occur anywhere between 2 to 21 days after contact. So that's what can make Um, Ebola so dangerous is that your body when you start getting the wet symptoms will just be expelling different fluids that all contain this virus that gets in you anyway and uh, you may not know you may not have known especially when it first came out um, people didn't really know what it was and know how infectious it was so they came in contact with someone who had it and maybe they got a little bit of their vomit on them or a little bit of their blood up their nose and they didn't have symptoms for days and they traveled to other countries and that could just spread it like crazy. And luckily the um, outbreaks that have happened and occurred have been fairly well contained, but, uh, Ebola does have a high fatality rate. Mm -hmm. Average rate is about 50%, but it can be up to uh, 90% fatality. And a lot of the outbreaks occur in Africa. And so obviously they do not have access to the same kind of healthcare and treatments that we would have in first world countries. So they will have the higher fatality rates. But I did learn this was new to me that there's, um, while there's currently no like specific treatment besides treating the symptoms, um, they there is a vaccine in the works and it's um, pretty promising right now. Like it's still in the works, it's still going through trials, but it has shown to be promising, which would be exciting because Ebola could just like wipe out an entire city, like. Yeah, with and one then, person mm-hmm. infected with it. Yeah, and then the socio the socioeconomic impact of a city being shut down, which we're all seeing now in a different way, but of cities being shut down because of fear of spreading an illness. So, okay. and that can really wipe people out financially. So, a, a vaccine for something like that and would be world changing. Ebola is so fascinating to me because there's some ways where Ebola kind of shows some failures, but there's some ways where the handling of Ebola has like shown a little bit of a success story in preventing spread because it has surprisingly been contained to certain areas. It's, it's always been around, but it's been surprisingly well contained. Yes, exactly. Um, The fact that there have, there was just an outbreak last year, I think Mm -hmm. Um, that was pretty big, but it was, contained and even when we had it in the United States within like the last five years or so yeah. and like I think it was like five people in the United States had it yeah uh, 
but it was only five because it was like so well contained. So do you remember that absolute freak out? Yeah. Because it was something that, that like there's entire decimated villages, whole families wiped off the map in Africa from Ebola. And then and everybody's just like, and, and then like literally a dude in Dallas has Ebola and yeah. everybody is just high pitched screaming for days on end. That was, I think, when one of the like marking points of I like diseases. I'm gonna research them more. Yeah. Hey, I could this. study this in school. <laughs> Thanks to the beautiful University of West Florida, I very extensively wrote about Ebola at one point, and I find it super fascinating. It's so fascinating. It's but there's multiple strains, mm-hmm. um, but only specific strains are shown to be like active in humans. Like Mm -hmm. people have been exposed to other strains and never shown any symptoms or anything. Um, The book, The Hot Zone by Richard Preston. Amazing book. Amazing book. Um, He has, uh, he also has uh, Demon in the Freezer, which is about smallpox, my other favorite disease. So good. (laughs) Uh, But The Hot Zone is really well done about an outbreak in monkeys that occurred in Washington DC and it I d- I was finishing reading it actually at the start of the coronavirus pandemic stuff so it was kind of interesting to see the parallels and how the government was handling things but that's really fascinating hemorrhagic fevers are very intriguing to me because they just make your body start bleeding yeah it's the actual mechanism is totally bananas you know it's funny because so Jen and I have like a almost comical amount of things in common in our lives. It's kind of like a through line of our friendship is that we'll find something new all the time and be like, oh yeah, that too. Okay. But <laughs> you said my favorite hemorrhagic fever. And I was like, oh my God, do we have the same, the same favorite hemorrhagic fever? <laughs> like that's like a friendship <laughs> thing, which nearly, we almost do. Mine's Marburg. So, okay. Yep. Very close. Similar. Yeah. Extremely, extremely close. And the same, the vaccine you were talking about is the same vaccine that Ebola and Marburg would be both handled with the same vaccine. Very similar. Let's get tattoos of Ebola and Marburg. Do you remember the tiny microbe plushies? Yes. I have the Ebola one. I also have E. coli and AIDS. I have E. coli and AIDS. (laughs) Don't worry about me, guys. Ebola, E. coli. So sorry. It explains a lot of things about me, why I'm so ornery all the time. (laughs) <laughs> but the tiny microbes was like the coolest thing ever. They used to sell them at Think Geek. And I got the Ebola, uh, which is just the little, obviously the little protein strand that has the little hook and curl. And then, uh, and then yeah, E. coli, which is like a big hairy dude. And then AIDS, which is black, but even though AIDS isn't black. But anyway, so <laughs> that was, very, this was a very enjoyable one. Yeah, We had a lot a little- of side business going on. <laughs> a lot of tangents because... Oh my gosh, it's so good. So a little uh, reminder, um, please don't forget to give our new uh, monthly Conspiracy Cabaret a listen. If you haven't already, we put out our first episode on QAnon. We're tremendously proud of it and had a great time researching and recording our episodes. Um, So those will be coming out on the third Friday of every month at 8 a.m. Pacific time. And then our normal episodes, of course, are always going to come out at Uh, every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific time. So would you like to go down Citation Street? Let's do it. Okay. Did I start this time? 
You two start this time. Okay. Um, so talking about uh, the Dutch TV show, I can't say the name of, and some <laughs> cannibals. I got my info from Ranker, of course, and The Telegraph. <laughs> um, and necrotizing fasciitis, my info came from cdc.gov and orthobullets.com, which if you are studying medical things, go to orthobullets. Nobody ever tells you that, but you should use it. Um, so I found out about how much my skin weighs on live science. Ugh. And <laughs> just you thought about it like pooled up on the floor again. Wait, let me get my skin suit. <laughs> um, and Otzi's cool tattoos came from Discover Magazine. And the Kentucky meat shower is from Mental Floss. <laughs> All right. The uh, first transfusion was from Britannica. The history of the Bloody Mary, the drink, travel, and leisure. Ludwig Tessnow, I got it all on Wikipedia. Ever heard of it? Um, the science and math of how to forge your own um, sword from your enemy's blood. Do not recommend. Do not try this at home. <laughs> uh, was from the website We Are the Mighty, mm. and so if you real, they also um, did expand into steel if you wanted to do it from steel. But I was just like, my mind was a little exhausted after figuring out iron that I didn't want to read the extra stuff on steel. Um, and then Ebola, uh, CDC and WHO, and like I said, The Hot Zone by Richard Preston. And then he also just released a newer book also on Ebola, and I can't remember the name of it. But know we got a new book. Yeah, he released it, I think in 20, I want to say 2018. I don't know, I bought it for my dad for like a birthday present, and then he already had the book. And then, no, I got it for him for Christmas, and he already had the book. And then I got him another book for his birthday that he also already had. So I don't <laughs> buy my gifts. Oh my goodness. Dad, dads are traditionally impossible to buy for though. Which shows that I know what books he'd want to read. It's just he's on top of it. That's kind of the thing. When you're older and you're trying to buy gifts for your dad, because this is the problem my sister and I have with my dad, is that they just already buy all the stuff they want. Yeah. So like you know they want it and then they just buy it. They're just like, oh, like my dad, like he'll just be like, oh, I want this this cool wide-brimmed hat. So when I do yard work, I've got this cool hat. And we're like, okay, write that down for Christmas. And it's like, oh, well, he just the next day after he said that bought himself that hat because he wanted uh, it and he's a grown man. <laughs> yeah. So. Real quick, dad, if you still have that second copy of Richard Preston's newest book, I'll take it. Thanks. <laughs> so I can read it. And then you send it to me after. But we should do we should do a reading list. We should. I think we can start a Goodreads list. We should do that. We absolutely should. If you want, if you want a reading list, because we're both super book nerds too. If you want a reading list of things that we've read that uh, have been used in our research, then let us know. And you can let us know anything you want. Do you have Ebola? Have you ever seen or done a Kentucky meat shower? <laughs> Oh, only eating. Not any. I don't want to know anything else about a Kentucky. Have you Have you eaten anyone on Dutch TV? Uh, do you have a flesh eating virus? Do you love Bloody Marys? You know, oh, like 
your favorite Bloody Mary. Yeah, absolutely. So how, you know, what percent of your body is your skin? Why don't you send us a DM at Weird Flex Podcast um, on the Instagrams, or you can email us at weirdflexpodcast on at gmail.com. And we want to hear from you. We love you. What if I was like, no, my skin is 20% of my body weight. Like what if I was just like, I have very heavy skin. Well, I guess if you really think about it, like people who lost a ton of weight and they have a bunch of loose skin, like with their skin, but, but also it's like the skin is stretched out. It's not necessarily the same thickness. I would love to hear somebody who knows about this. If you, yeah. if you're a plastic surgeon and you actually know about if the percentage of your body weight in, versus skin, uh, like if you actually know that, please let me know. I do. I do want to know that. I do also want to know. Hit us up. Yeah. Does it just thin out, or do you actually have more skin? Fascinating. But anyway, thank you for listening. We appreciate <laughs> you all the time. Yeah. Follow us on all the things, and please share us with your friends. Let's get some more German listeners. Why not? And next week we are going to wrap up spooky season with ghosts and goblins so So. excited yay yay all right we'll see you (laughs) later guys Bye.